Hello and welcome to Dawncast Podcast. I'm Dai Lee. We come to Dawncast where we shine the light on stories and the diversity of talent that makes Australia a successful multicultural society that it is today. Uh, we have got Sibo. Now, Sibo, please excuse me for the pronunciation of your full name, but I'd like to read it out. So it's Sibo Ginkosi. Is that right? Sibo Ginkosi. Is that correct? <laughs> You tried. It's I tried. okay. <laughs> I keep it to Sibo, a co-founder yeah. of Long Alive Foundation, an organization that helps orphan and vulnerable uh, children in Zimbabwe to have access to education and opportunities. Sibo is originally from Zimbabwe and is currently based in Melbourne, Australia. She is a multifaceted individual who is a social entrepreneur an engineer, an engineer, a writer and speaker. So welcome to Dawn Cast, Sibo. Um, thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, look, it's, um, how is Melbourne? How are you going in Melbourne at the moment? Uh, to be honest, we're hanging in there, uh, just, you know, waiting for a day of freedom. <laughs> but we're okay. We can't really complain anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that uh, things have, are going to improve. There are less deaths and less numbers of positive cases. Is that correct? That the premier, premier and the, uh, the, the health um, uh, director of officer came out today saying that children are going to be going back to face-to-face, uh, you know, face-to-face education next week sometimes. Yes. So the numbers have dropped drastically, which we're grateful for. And, um, you know, if children, once children can go back to face to face, we expect that everything else will start to, you know, slowly but surely, you know, have some sort of normalcy, of course, whilst we'll, we remain cautious mm. on our end. Mm. Now, I mean, I don't want to just focus on COVID-19 because obviously it's, um, for me, Dawncast is about really shining the light on the diversity of stories and talent that we have here in our country, in our society. But uh, I obviously also wanted to uh, touch upon how COVID um, really impacted the African-Australian community. In particular, I think earlier um, during the year when, uh, you know, the case of two, I think, two young uh, African-Australian women who were exposed in the media due to, I think, them travelling to Queensland, um, do you what, what's what's your perspective um, in terms of the whole media coverage around that issue? Um, I think the media coverage, the way the story was said, only amplified um, racist attacks towards the African Australian community. Now, to be fair, were these young ladies in the right with what they did? Obviously not. But the fact that it was really, you know, highlighted that, you know, they're part of the African-Australian community, all of a sudden it, it became us and them all over again. And it opened up the community to, you know, more unnecessary attacks. So whilst um, the community denounces what the young ladies did because they were exposing themselves, risking the community, but at the same time, they're Australian as well. You know, they're not just part of the African-Australian community. They're part of the whole the whole country so that that already amplified you know the suffering or whatever it is people were going through mm. i mean i'm sure that i know that it, it wasn't just those two young girls i mean there are situations whereby other people were 
flouting uh, at the time when they were at the height of the whole COVID-19 situation. There were different people who were not uh, wearing masks or who were not social distancing, who were breaking, well, who were just carrying on their normal lives. But obviously in the context of COVID, there are all these regulations coming all at once, really, who, who you, you don't know what's in, you know, what's the, what's the rules and what's not the rules anymore because, you know, they probably were doing something that was, they considered normal. I, I don't know. Um, but, um, f- you know, I have no doubt that they probably not were the only ones that were, um, as, you know, people were saying, flouting or breaking the rules. Um, what, how did you, being an African-Australian community person, felt about it and what were discussions that was had in the community? How did they affect, affect how did it affect them? Um, to be honest, we, we felt sad because in Melbourne, it's it's not the first time the media and the African-Australian community you know, are having their differences. Um, we, we had the African gang situation going on. Then you had uh, residents in Flemington Towers not being able to go out, of which most of them are often, you know, African-Australian refugee background. So, you know, the community leaders were talking, they were denouncing with how the media had um, covered this. And they were also trying to say that's why it's important for there to be more um, diversity in the media space. Like the more diverse the media space is when, you know, the news is said, it's said in all fairness and without targeting a specific racial group um, in the broad Australian community. Mm. I mean, you being a writer and a speaker, how often do you um, get the opportunity to speak about um, race or uh, impact or situations like COVID or, or other, like um, the, the African quote-unquote gangs that the media have kind of labelled. Um, you know, how often do you get to speak about th- those kind of issues? To be honest, um, as a writer, I hadn't been, you know, in, you know, I didn't want to focus on those kind of things when I started my writing. But um, in July, I wrote an article for a magazine based in the UK called Black Foundation called Let's Talk About Race. And in that article, I just um, I just opened my heart and um, explored the, you know, race racism in general, um, how when here in Australia, you know, a young Caucasian boy came up to me and told me I was chocolate. And I told him, you know, my whole family's chocolate. And he was so, you know, surprised in his innocence. But in that article, I said, if children can see race, and, you know, think of these things like what do, you know, adults obviously think about these things. So of late, I've had to tailor my writing towards, you know, what's happening. You know, I have articles coming up. I've been also forced to tell my story um, as an immigrant. You know, I came here as an international student. That's my own journey to Australia. And um, so I've written a book that I hope, you know, to publish in the next coming months that that tells my story of where I come from. Uh, who I am, the history of my background, just to add to that diversity that, you know, that's already in, in Australia. So that, that's what I try and do. Mm. So you came here as an international student. When was that and um, wh- why? To, to For what degree? That's what I meant. Okay, so I came in 2014. Uh, July to be specific, to study a master's in engineering management at um, RMIT University. And what attracted me to Australia was, um, you know, obviously RMIT has a very good reputation as an engineering school and um, the opportunities that the, you know, the country would have for a young immigrant such as myself. 
And so you came by yourself or like? Yes, I came here by myself. Uh, even though I had an aunt and uncle who had uh, migrated here years earlier. But when I decided to come, I just, you know, packed my bags, left my parents, my siblings, and and came here. So what has it been like in the last six years um, being here, um, you know, working here and living here in Australia? Is it, uh, I mean, often people have said Australia is a racist country. Um, you know, we both are are, are coloured people. I, I, you know, for me, growing up here, I have experienced some form of racism, name callings more than anything else, but it hasn't really um, impacted me um, personally that much. Uh, although I have to say that in terms of career progression, that's probably where the subtle, subtle structural barriers that are there, whether or not that's racism or not, I, I don't want to call put labels to that but certainly there are definitely uh, structural barriers um so what you know what has it been like for you for the last six years wow it's been a journey to be honest because um firstly i didn't migrate to australia i've lived in the united states for four years in new york so new york like melbourne is a melting pot so it wasn't my first time being a black diasporan but the difference between the United States and Australia is that the African-Australian community seemed to be the last sense of immigrants. So first you had, um, you know, the wave of colonialism coming in. Then you had the gold rush, 1800s, brought in the Chinese, other Asians, then you had the Asians, and then you had that. Now you have the African-Australians. So for the most part, when I came here, I said, yeah, Australia is multicultural. But it turns out that, um, you know, we're getting there. And I would meet people who would tell me things like, oh, you know, I grew up in my whole neighborhood. It was all Caucasian. And this, you're the first black person that I've interacted with, you know. And uh, so sometimes I was the first black person, first African person that people have been close to. So there was that pressure where, God forbid, the experience was not good. Then that's how they're going to see everybody. At the same time, if we had a good experience, it was like, oh, you know, we like you, your people, but this, I'm just one person, you know, representing <laughs> a whole race. And then you had the stereotypes too. So, this, so did you feel um, some sort of pressure, did you, that you have to ensure that you were an upstanding citizen and a good ambassador for, I mean, for, for the African uh, Australian population? To be honest, I did, you know, I'm only human, but I did feel pressure. And the other thing is um, some, the African community comes here in different ways. Some come as skilled immigrants, as international students like myself, or, you know, flee conflict and seek refuge here. But the usual stereotype is when most people meet an African Australian is they think that you're a refugee. So once you don't fit the stereotype of being a refugee, some people become very uncomfortable that, oh, so you came here to study like you know how like why mm. so so how do you reconcile that like if somebody met you and kind of have this perspective and already this bias that you are you know a refugee and obviously the conversation that they have with you will be different if they if they only knew that you were a migrant in terms of coming to study and doing business those two different conversations aren't they very, very different conversations. But what I do is first, I don't take it personally because um, 
I've seen in the media, you know, people who've done well here, but um, even though they've been in Australia way longer than I've been, they're still introduced as refugees first, even though they've, you know, built flourishing careers. So first, I don't take it personally. And two, I just, you know, listen. I try and listen first to understand where the other person is coming from. And the third thing is I later explain my own journey and explain that for the African-Australian community, there are 54 countries on the African continent and every every country's journey is different. So while some may be going through conflict, some are at peace. So, you know, I try, it's also a way to, I see it as a opportunity to educate as well. So I, I just go with it. <laughs> now you, I mean, your purpose coming to Australia is to study. Um you're, but I think you're very passionate about giving back to the community and to the Australian community. And that's through your involvement with the um, Alive, um, Love Alive Foundation. Um, tell us a bit about what, what, why, what, what motivated you to do that? Okay, so um, firstly, in the Australian community, I've volunteered for many organisations and um, I'm bec- I became a Rotarian this year which was one of my my proudest moments. But Love Alive Foundation was um, a way for me to give back to where I came from. So as you know, I'm originally from Zimbabwe, but um, I'm someone who's passionate about helping young people have access to education and opportunities. So this is something that's been, I've been doing, you know, unofficially. So this year I decided to register it um, officially and it's, you know, started off really well despite the whole, uh, COVID challenges. And why I did it is because as an immigrant, you build two nations. I'm Australian, I'm African as well. So as a responsible citizen of the world, I'm here to build Australia and build Zimbabwe as well. And how, you know, what, um, and the situation for these children in Zimbabwe, obviously you, you came from Zimbabwe. What is it like for them in terms of accessing education and access, accessing Uh, opportunities really isn't it yes um right now unfortunately due to our economic economic situations back in zimbabwe it hasn't been good especially for children who are orphaned or who've lost a breadwinner so school fees can be like about 20 australian dollars per term but you find dozens of children not being able um, to go to school then if you convert that to here what's 20 dollars people you know per term Yes, the term for school fees. Mm. Yeah. So converting the whole, you know, money and you just think like, you know, what can I do? I can't just sit idly. You know, of course, I wish I could help everyone, but at least I can help someone. Mm. I Mm. can, you know, use me coming here is for a purpose. You know, at least I'm more empowered to be able to to make a difference back there. Mm. I'm just going to interrupt because I think there is a – um, scratching noise, and I wonder whether or not it's on the other side, your um, your other side, and the earring, whether or not it's scratching onto the mic, because I can just constantly hear it. Okay. That, that one, that's it. That's one? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Talk about and move about and see. Okay, is it the one? Yeah, that's it, that's the one. Okay. Um, what, uh, do uh, I take uh, them off? No, no, just, just put the, 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 the line away from Put it outside, on the outside, maybe. Okay. Um, let me see if I can, like this? No? Yeah, that's better. 
All right, I'll try to stay still. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, it's pre-recorded. We, <laughs> that's but it's fine. Um, so and and you, but you're also still connected to your um, birth country. Uh, uh, you know, my understanding is that you've got your, your your parents' business. Is that right as well? Like it's so you're still very much connected with Zimbabwe. Yes, I am. Uh, so my family owns a business. My family have a clothing manufacturing business. Um, they import fabric, a little bit of real estate. So, um, you know, as someone who was raised by entrepreneurs, I'm somehow here and there um, involved in the family business. And is that still what you still do here in in Australia? No, in Australia, I do a couple of things, you know, part of working for um, the NGO. But I look on um, to starting something of my own. Mm-hmm. Um in the near coming future, but I've, I've had a good run of, you know, um, worked as a business campaign assistant for an IT firm when I, you know, graduated from uni. So that, that opened me up to a lot. And in terms of engineering, um, my senior thesis for my master's was, you know, trying to help refugees get a minimum energy requirement through engineering without borders. Right. So I've, I've had a lot of interesting experiences, I would say. Wise. Have there been uh, what has been? Have there been any hurdles in your journey in the last six years here, uh, being part of Australia, or you know, in 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 what you do, especially say you know, with in the entrepreneurial space? Uh, have there been any kind of really moments that you kind of feel really think, oh, I'm just going to pack up and go back to Zimbabwe? Yeah, maybe when I first um, started. So when you come here um, on a student visa, obviously your limited work, uh, your limited um, opportunities uh, in terms of most jobs want a permanent resident or a citizen. So before you get to that part, you know, you may have the skills or whatever it is, but they won't just, you know, employ you because they're not going to go through the motions of sponsoring someone when they already have options of people who already migrate here with full working rights. So I would say that was maybe the initial hur- hurdles I faced, you know, upon graduating with flying colors, a distinction. By the same time, you know, I didn't have full work rights, you know, and stuff like that. So I think those are some of, I think any other immigrant who comes via the international student path can can tell you yeah. that they go through. But and so did, so how then you, how did you get across, how did you get through that, that tunnel of, kind of saying oh okay these are the challenges I've just got to hang on and persevere how, how did you break through that um sure so first I had to be open to any job I could find be in childcare, be at factory be at cleaning like I couldn't say oh you know I'm a degree person now I won't do this kind of job so firstly I had to make sure I have a stream of income coming in and the other thing was looking for a pathway on how I can get my um you know residency so after a while, it, it's a point system. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. Yeah. So after a while, I was <laughs> I was able to um, get enough points um, that I needed. And yeah, and then after, you know, waiting for a bit, I was able to get my permanent residency. And I can say after that, things kind of turned around for me. And so things are now, do you think, on, you know, like the up for you? Like... Being here yes, this, I would yeah. definitely say more on the up. Definitely looking for more better opportunities still. Uh, if not for COVID, obviously, yeah. <laughs> to blame the external factor. Yeah. But um, 
definitely, I would say that at least now I'm in a better position, which is why I probably even started Love a Life Foundation this year. Mm-hmm. Just when you, when you were saying that you were, you know, looking for the, all those different jobs and, and doing anything that you, you could really in the first initial years. Um, obviously, were there moments when people, when you applied or you, you went for something, people said, no, we, we, we won't accept you, like moments of rejection when you applied for jobs? Absolutely. Absolutely. There were moments like that. And I think I, to be honest, rejection is not pleasant, even though it seems non-personal. But I think after a while, I was like, look, Sibo, you have to sink or swim. Like, either, because if you let it, you know, it, you can easily, I've met people of similar background who've gotten depressed, mm. you know, or who've given up altogether on trying or upskilling, doing a course online, you know, just keep fighting as a first generation immigrant they're just like look this you know i'm doomed let me just those with kids will say okay maybe my kids will have a better chance than me but they've, they've given up on the australian dream if i'm allowed to use that term wow so so how did you deal with those no's like what what did you do to ensure that you did not give up on the australian dream uh first uh Okay, to be fair, I'm, I'm grateful for, com- for coming from a resilient family because if your parents were entrepreneurs, you know that they face all sorts of things. So I would say I was raised by very strong people. But I think I had one day I just had to have to write down, why did I come here? Do I still want to stay here? You know, so just, uh, you know, point form writing, okay, what are the advantages of being in Australia? You know, should I pack up and leave? Um, will I be happy with myself in five years' time? Well, if I don't, you know, fight for the best as it is now, you know, and I listen to a lot of motivational speakers <laughs> out there. So I really had to, to keep pushing. I just said, okay, I came here willingly and I need to give myself a chance. So I'm not going to give up, at least not yet. So I said to myself, and that's how I just kept, you know, kept going. That's important. Listen, I think you touch upon that. Being an entrepreneur, um, being in the business world, people who've been on that journey have encountered so many uphill battles and, and ups and downs of running a business. So it's that um, that spirit of resilience, isn't it? That you kind of think, no, I've got to, I've got to keep on going. I can't give up now. Exactly, that is it. Like I can't, you know, quit. I can't give up now. And the thing is, as a migrant. Um, anyone who's ever migrated here will tell you it's not cheap. You've taken into savings, maybe sometimes even family inheritance, you know, part of it to come here, you know. So you've, you've already sacrificed so much. So I think even though sometimes they're darker days, but once you just remember that, look, I've already spent X, Y, Z dollars to get here. I've already stopped whatever I was doing before, you know, coming here. Am I just going to, you know, just quit now? Like you just have to keep reminding yourself of the journey. You just have to keep, you know, pushing. Mm. But, and, you, and but, but you touch upon it. It's about you keeping yourself. You have to remind yourself. That it, it's about you. It's the, the difference at the end of the day is you, isn't it? Yes, it is you. Because um, to be honest, they, it's as much as anyone else can encourage you and push you. But once you give up, that's it. You know what I mean? Like once you yourself give up, like you you become even blind to opportunities in front of you. 
because as you as you you know not quit as you keep pushing i don't know how it works whatever you believe in i believe in divine opportunities because i believe in god and stuff but whatever it is as you keep going something will shift but then you have to once you stop how will you see the opportunities once you stop looking you know you yeah. won't you won't find them so you have to keep pushing yourself. And like you said, like sometimes when people ask me, oh, so why do you keep doing what you do? How do you do that? How do you keep yourself motivated? And I said, well, you do. You you, you have to. Like you said, you listen to inspirational talks. I, I build into my daily routines whereby in the morning I listen to really calming music to calm myself down or to, to start to, to create the day for me and then ensuring that whatever I consume throughout the day is really, it's the, it keeps me going. Um, and I think, I don't know if people do that enough, is to feed their soul and to feed their, their, their minds in terms of good content or good music to keep them going. Um, sadly, most people don't. Um, I think, uh, you know, physical health is very important. Don't get me wrong. Exercising, eating right. But there's a balance, you know, the whole holistic health. And a lot of people don't realize that mind power is needed too, you know, not just body power. Like once you're in a, you have a sound mind, it combined you know, with a good body and everything else, it's easier to keep going. But once internally, it's negative, negative, negative. And, you know, like you said, you listen to calming music. You you make sure you're fired up to go and, you know, do whatever it is. And that's what keeps you, you know, following your projects, following your dreams and things like that. So sad to say most people are like, eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and especially, say, say for example, during so, – so let's touch upon that in terms of the, the, the death of George Floyd. That had a huge – impact around the world but in particular on on african australian community not just here but african uh, you know people around the world what was going through your mind at the time for you um living here i mean obviously the incident wasn't right here at, at, at your door you know in the front of your doorstep uh, step but um i know other african australian um, people were really personally impacted and emotionally impacted. What what did that incident do to you? I was so sad. First, I couldn't believe that it happened. I mean, we're, look at where we are. America firstly has had, America is one of those um, like leading nations for the African community, if you'd like to uh, put it that way. They've had a black president before, you know, when people thought, okay, Obama's been for what else can happen now? But sadly, this happens in, in broad daylight, you would say. Their camera, you know, this is a century where there are cameras everywhere. You can't even start to think that someone would do that, you know, in front of the world to see. And to add on to that, people couldn't go and protest properly in Australia because already we have, um, you know, this global pandemic and this happens. So as much as people wanted to do something, especially if you were in Melbourne, we were kind of, you know, some people did go, but because of safety reasons, not everyone could yeah. go and speak out. I felt very, very sad because I saw that, look, racism is still alive and thriving. But because people don't talk about it, it grows quietly. And the more people shy away from talking about, you know, racism or embracing diversity, like it's, it's nothing's going to change. Yes, we'll get angry. Yes, we'll protest. But we need like lasting change and we need to start having uncomfortable con conversations about racism, that racism does exist. 
And why does it exist? Because sometimes what I've seen in conversations is that it's just ignorance or fear that people get from media to be afraid of black people, other people of color. So what, what it did, it, 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 it made people angry. It made people sad. It made people reactive. It made people feel like victims all over again. Because yeah. if you know the history of the black nations from fighting colonialism to dealing with issues of slavery, you know, from the Americas, the Caribbean and worldwide, you know, whatever it is. But now just when people thought, okay, we're kind of past that, you know, we, we're trying to move forward, build a united world. We're a global village now. I mean, there's still work to be done, Dave. That's what I have to say. That, 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 that was what I felt like. There's still more work to be done. And that's why I wrote the article I, I wrote, Let's Talk About Race. And I decided to, to try and, you know, find ways to, to make everyone comfortable talking about race, mm. if possible. And now with your involvement um, in Rotary in Melbourne, um, do you think that that is a platform that you will be able to talk about race in a, um, in a business setting, in a collaborative setting? Um, absolutely. Um, one thing I love about Rotary here is that it's slowly going to be diverse. And um, what what other place, right, where you meet people from different backgrounds to to talk about it. So fortunately, my Rotary president of uh, Rotary of Wyndham Harbour cited my article. I wrote it, posted it on LinkedIn, and he he really liked it. So he was, you know, trying to come up with ideas on how he can move it through Rotary because he felt that it's it's a needed conversation, oh. you know, even though he may not be African-Australian. Well, but maybe it's those people that actually can help champion the cause for you. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like allies. I think they call them allies. Yes, we call them allies. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Diversity allies. So do you, did you have people who, uh, who, who backed you on this journey? Like, did you reach out to mentors? Did you have um, people that you can call on that can actually guide you uh, on this journey that you made here in Australia? Um, so here I did get a mentor, definitely, um, a lovely lady named uh, Louise. And I met her uh, during an African-Australian um, leadership program I did by Leadership Victoria. So she, I would say she's my, you know, Australian mentor. So I've had mentors, you know, around the world, uh, my parents being my first set of, yeah. of mentors. But here, definitely uh, meeting Louise, I would say, helped me in so many ways. Like I... I then realize that you need a mentor where you are. Like a mentor overseas is good and important, but sometimes you need someone who knows the country and the systems and things like that. Mm. So um, we're coming towards an end. So what were some of the lessons you've learned, say, uh, in this journey of, uh, you know, settling here in Australia, being an international student, finding your job, uh, planting your setting your roots here in this country um, and especially during this COVID time, what have been some of the lessons you have learned? Um, I think the, les- the first lessons I probably learned was culture shock is real. <laughs> Even though you've lived in another country that's not your own, every country is different. So be prepared for that. Um, I've learned uh, to be open-minded Um, to give people a second chance, even though they've been racist or they've said something that's derogatory or whatever it is. Um, I've learned to keep pushing, not to give up. I would say I've I've become more emotionally intelligent 
than I've been, you know, when I was younger. I've also learned that diversity and inclusion is a journey. It's um it's a progressive journey and it it does take time. It's not like ta-da, you know, we have diversity inclusion offices everywhere nowadays, but it's still um a journey and I've learned to make the best of what I have, grab the opportunities I have and also just to I mean live life to the fullest because you only have one life. Oh, absolutely. Tell me about that. Absolutely. Um, and so what would you like people to remember you for? Wow, that, that's one of those questions, right? Uh, I'd like people to remember me for someone who loved to make a difference in her community, someone who was a voice of the voiceless, and someone who made sure that people who didn't have a chance got a chance you know, to follow their dreams or just get a chance to live, you know, and to make um, a difference. And someone who did her best to try and make the world as inclusive as possible. Well, thank you so much for that, Sibo. Um, so that was Sibo joining us from Melbourne, Victoria, and uh, co-director of Alive Love, uh, Love Alive Foundation. A co-founder of that organization so if you like to hear more stories like Zibos, please click on the bell button below and subscribe to our channel dawncast i'm dai lee and thank you for joining us once again speak to you soon bye you better turn up you better be there when i shake watch me rocking if i can't stop